So the remedy for that is to generate wisdom, the wisdom that sees the emptiness of true existence, and thereby eradicate the causes for birth and death in sattvic existence, and arrive at a state of nirvana or peace. But looking around to just search for our own peace, practice for our own peace, is really rather self-centered. And so it's important to remember the kindness of other sentient beings and to frame our practice with the bodhicitta or base our practice on the bodhicitta the aspiration to become a Buddha for the benefit of all these kind sentient beings who have been our parents and have been kind to us even when they haven't been our parents. And so with this thought to work for their benefit, then we'll listen and contemplate the teachings on the lack of inherent existence. There were um, a few questions that came from last week. I was happy to receive questions that shows people are actually thinking about the teachings. Okay, so let's start with these questions because I think if we answer the questions, then it will help people understand the upcoming teaching. Okay, so one question. Is it correct... Uh, the correct way to use Chandakirti's seven-point refutation in a meditation to combine them with the four-point analysis for meditating on the emptiness of the person, starting with identifying the object to be negated and proceed to the seven points. So, yeah, what you can do is take the four-point analysis and you have the first two points. First, identifying the object of negation. And second, establishing the pervasion, okay, which means that if the self, for example, were truly existent, then it should either be inherently one with the aggregates or inherently separate from the aggregates. There's no third alternative. So it's very important to establish that provision so that your ma then your mind knows that if things inherently exist, there's only those two choices. There's not more than two. Okay. So you do those first two of the seven po of the of the four point analysis. Then the last two points of the four point analysis are the first of the uh, two points of the seven points of Chandakirti, which is asking if the self is inherently one with the aggregates and then asking if it's inherently different from the aggregates. So you do those and those are the two points that overlap between the four and the seven. And then the other five points in the seven, seeing asking if the um, self inherently possesses the aggregates if the self depends on the aggregates or the aggregates depend on the self, um, if the self is the collection of aggregates, 
and if the self is the arrangement or shape of the aggregates, those five points, then you continue on with. Okay? So you have your four points, and then your seven points. I don't have seven fingers, but imagine. So your first two points of, of your seven points overlap with the last two of the four points, and then you continue on with the other five points. Okay? Because the other four, five points can all be subsumed into is the self one with the aggregates or is it separate from the aggregates. But remember that it's really important when you're doing this to spend some time on the first point, which is, uh, you know, seeing the object of negation. Yeah, don't skip that and say, oh, it's the inherently existent I, what's next? You know, because you have to have that feeling of the inherently existent I and have it very strong and see how much you really believe it exists. You know, you have to have that feeling that this I definitely exists. There's no two ways about it, you know, and have that very strong feeling of I exist, boom, you know. And then when you have that, then you ask if the I exists in that way, is it one with the aggregates, is it separate from the aggregates? And if you do that, then when you negate true existence, when you can't find a truly existent eye, then you'll have some experience from the meditation. But if you don't have that feeling, you know, of me, and you don't really believe that there is this me that definitely exists, then negating it has no impact on your mind. Okay? It's like if you don't really believe you have a million dollars, Somebody coming and telling you you got robbed of a million dollars, it won't faze you. Okay. Somebody came to me and said they stole a million dollars from you. Yeah, it's like one of those junk mail I get, you know. Yeah, sure. You know, what million dollars? <laughs> but if I really believed I had a million dollars and somebody came and said, ah, somebody just embezzled it, whoa, you get a reaction. Okay? So it has to be the same way when we're investigating to see if the I truly exists. You have to really have that strong feeling of truly existing I. So that feeling comes up when you have very strong emotion. Okay? So when you really, really, really want something. Okay? Or when you're really, really hurt. Or when you're really, really mad, okay, you know, like somebody's, you know, accused you of doing something that you haven't done at all and your reputation is at stake. Or, you know, your whole world fell apart and, you know, everything you treasured, you know, disappeared and your attachment comes up or your hurt comes up, okay. So that feeling of I then that's not a wimpy feeling of I, is it? There's a very strong, clear feeling of I. That I exists. And it's king of the universe. Okay. Then you start checking if it exists. Okay, second question. So what is the, what is the object of the direct perception of emptiness. Okay. Let's start this way. What is the object of the direct perception of yellow? When your eye consciousness sees yellow, what's the object? Yellow. Okay. When your ear, your consciousness has a direct perception of the sound of the bell, what's the object? The sound of the bell. When you have a direct perception of emptiness, what's the object? emptiness okay it's the emptiness of all phenomena but that emptiness of all phenomena appears it doesn't appear differently because you're not having the appearance of all those different phenomena okay 
Yeah. When you have the, when you have consciousnesses that sees grapes and elephants and giraffes and hippopotamuses, those are all different objects, okay? And one consciousness can't see all of them all together. But the emptiness of all phenomena, it doesn't appear differently. The emptiness of the giraffe and the emptiness of the elephant cannot be distinguished in direct perception because they're all just emptiness. So it's the emptiness of inherent existence that is appearing to you and that you're cognizing in the direct perception. Okay, clear? Okay, then, so when we do the four-point analysis, are we looking for the conventionally existing self or the conventionally existent car, or what are we looking for? Okay, we, the first point in the seven points is the, to identify the object of negation, and that is the inherently existent I. When you're meditating on the self, if you're meditating on the car, it's the inherently existent car. So you're not searching for the conventionally existent car. You're searching for the, the inherently existent one. Because we don't need to negate the conventionally existent one because ex there's no problem with it. Yeah. Conventionally existent car exists. We don't need to negate it. It's not the root of our problems. The grasping at an inherently existent I or an inherently existent person, that causes us problems and that's the wrong, for, you know, cognition. And so it's the object of that cognition, the inherently existent person, for example, that's the one that we're searching for. Because that's the one that doesn't exist, but we believe it exists. Okay? Yeah. So you've got to look for the inherently existent ones. Okay. So those were the questions. So last time... We talked about, we were doing the seven points of Chandakirti in relationship to the person, the self. As you all start looking through your notes frantically, oh, I didn't look at them since last Thursday. What is this course about? Um, okay, so we were looking at the first point. Is the self inherently one with the aggregates? And there were several faults that would occur if the self were one with the aggregates. Okay? Like saying self would be superfluous because it was already one with the body and mind and you already have the body and mind. Or if that wasn't true, then, you know, if you have one self, you should have one aggregate. Or if you have many aggregates, you should have many selves. Okay? Or if that wasn't true, then, uh, you know, the, the self would have, um, um, how did, how did it turn there? Let me get this right, the wording. Um, the, well, the agent and object would be one, okay? And then the fourth one, would the person would inherently arise and disintegrate, okay? And so then we started to see what were the faults of the person if we say it inherently arose and disintegrated. Yeah, and so the first fault of that would be it would be impossible to remember previous lives because the the different persons along the continuum would be, you know, quite different. The self would be one with one of those persons, but not one with the other one. Okay, so you couldn't have memories of previous lives. You couldn't even remember when you were five years old. Okay. Because the self now isn't exactly the same as the self at five years old, is it? Okay. And then another fault would be that we wouldn't experience the result of our actions because if the self were one with the aggregates, then when this body and mind went out of, you know, the body died and the mental aggregate went bye-bye, then there wouldn't be another person coming so there would be no person who would experience the results of our actions so karma would be would go to waste we couldn't experience the results of our actions 
So although we often talk about this in terms of rebirth, even again from five years old to when we were now, if our five-year-old self were inherently existent, and then when the five-year-old body went out of existence and we got an adult body, then there would be no self that continued. You know, we couldn't posit a self, so there would be nobody to experience the result of the karma, you know, or the result of the five-year-old learning the alphabet. Okay. Then another fallacy would be that we could, we would be able to experience the results of karma created by other people because if um, we say that in a, in a continuum that all the different selves are inherently existent, then you know something that is inherently existent uh, stands on its own. It isn't related to anything else. Okay, it's, it, it isn't produced, it's just there, yeah, independent. So that would mean that any two moments of the self would not exist in, you know, they would not be part of the same continuum as other moments of the self because they would be inherently different. So the self of this life, the self of next life would be totally separate, totally unrelated. Well, in a similar way, I and you are totally, we're different people. So if I can't experience the result of my own karma because you know, they're inherently different people, then I can't experience the, then, or if I should be able, put it this way, if I should be able to experience the result of the selves of my previous lives, even though they were inherently different than me, then I should be able to experience the results of your actions, because you're also different from me. Okay? So that's foolishness also. Yeah. So all these kind of faults come about if we assert that the self is one with the aggregates. Okay? So, now we look at if the self is different from the aggregates. Um, okay, so if the self were different from the aggregates, then there would also be some faults. So first, the self would not have the same characteristics as the aggregates. Because if they're, you know, different and they're inherently different, yeah, so they would be un, they wouldn't have the same characteristics. So that would mean that the body could die, but I wouldn't die. Okay. Or it could mean that there could be a painful uh, feeling in my mind, but I wouldn't feel pain. Yeah. Or... It could mean that I could die, but my body would live on. <laughs> Uninhabited by me, I guess. I don't know. Okay. So if the body, you know, if the aggregates, for example, the body and the self were inherently different, you would get these kind of problems. Okay. So like, okay. Another th defect that would happen if they were inherently different is we could we would be able to apprehend them separately, okay? Because they're inherently different, so they're unrelated, which would mean that my body and mind could be here and I could be across the room, okay? Or I could be here teaching, but my body and mind could be out in the garden. Yeah, that doesn't make much sense either, does it? Yeah. So we see, you know, when we when we look at these faults, that yeah, just in our common knowledge, there's a relationship between the self and the body and mind. You know, you can't apprehend them separately, and they can't do totally different things independent of each other. There's some kind of relationship because we can see these kind of faults that arise if they were inherently different. Okay. Then, does, does the self and the aggregate, do they exist in any of the other five ways? So last week we said they aren't inherently one. Then we just talked about how they aren't inherently different. Then can they exist in any of the other ways? Okay. So can the self inherently possess one of the aggregates? Yeah. So then, you know, 
can this, then we have the example, can the self uh, possess my body? Does it possess the body the way I possess a car or the way I possess an ear? Yeah? If, if I possess my body the way I possess a car, then the car and I are two totally different things. So then my body and me would be to- totally unrelated things. And then we have all the faults of what would happen if the body and the aggregates were, or the self and the aggregates were different. Okay? If, on the other hand, you said that the self possessed the body in the same way that it possesses an ear, or that we possess our mind in the same way as we possess an ear, then they would be inherently one and inseparable. Okay? And then you get all the faults of that if they're inherently one and inseparable. Okay? Then similarly, you ask, does the, um, does the, the self depend on uh, the aggregates? Okay, so you have the aggregates, and then the self is in there somehow. So this is our example of the forest with the lion. Okay, so is the body there, and then the self is just kind of wandering through? It feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? It feels like the self inherently depends on the aggregate, on the aggregates. Yeah. Well, what's wrong with that? Yeah. It inherently depends on the aggregates. Then, you know, they would have to be separate things, remember? Because aggregates and self would be two different things. Like the lion in the forest. Because you can take the lion out of the forest, can't you? Can you take the self out of the aggregates? Uh-uh. So even though sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? There's the body and mind, and then the self is roaming around in there. It can't actually exist that way, even though it feels like it could. And sometimes we have the complete opposite feeling of how the self exists. Sometimes we feel that the aggregates inherently depend on the self. So there's a self, there's me, and then you just kind of fill in the body and mind. Yeah. So the self exists as this overarching thing that holds the body and mind together. Yeah. Or the self is the support that holds up the the body and mind. Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Like butter spread over bread. It covers the whole aggregate. I covers the aggregate and holds them together. So that's that's like totally different than feeling like a lion in the forest, isn't it? But we sometimes have both of those different feelings about how our body and mind relate to each other. This just show, or how, not how our body and mind, how our self and our aggregates relate to each other. So it just shows how kind of unstable this, this grasping itself is, or this sense of self is. It's like changing all the time. Can't make up its mind. So then the question comes, is the um, self inherently, uh, you know, the the collection of the aggregates? Does it exist as the collection of the aggregates? So we were talking about this one at lunch. So there's a few different reputations for this. But one is, if you say the self is the collection of the aggregates, what is a collection? Point to a collection. You can't point to a collection, can you? It has to be a collection of something. So if it's a collection of the aggregates, then you're back to, is it one with the aggregates or separate from the aggregates? Because a collection is something that's very clearly uh, compounded, created, conditioned, put together. Yeah, collection doesn't exist by by its own nature. It gets put together. Okay, so that that's one problem with it. Then another problem is 
if the self were the collection of the aggregates, then the designated object, the self, and the basis of designation, the collection of the aggregates, would be inherently one and the same. And you couldn't differentiate them. That's a problem too, isn't it? Because the designated object and the object of designation are different, but they aren't inherently different. Okay? So the collection of the aggregates and the self are different. They're not the same, but they're not inherently different because they exist in this relationship of being designated object and basis of designation. Okay, you with me? So you can't say that the basis of designation and the designated object are one and the same. They're, they're different. Okay? A second problem would be that since we say the self takes the aggregates or the self grasps at the aggregates, yeah, if they were one, then we would have this problem of agent, the self, and object, the aggregate, being the same. Yeah. So that doesn't work either, because the agent and the object, the thing that's acted upon, can't be the same. They're different, but they're not inherently different. Okay. Third problem with the I being inherently one with the uh, aggregates is that and I, this one makes a lot of sense to me. Since each of the individual aggregates is not the self, how could the collection be the self? It's like if you have a, five oranges on this table, if you put the five oranges together to make a collection, does it become an apple? No. You didn't even answer. You can't even say that with the surety. If you put five oranges together and have a collection, does it become an apple? No. Well, you're not sure. Okay. So you have five things that are non-apples. If you put five things that are non-apples together, are you going to get an apple? No. If you go through each of the aggregates, is the body the person? No. Are the feelings the person? Are the discriminations the person? Are the conditioning factors the person? Are the consciousnesses the person? You have five non-persons. If you put five non-persons together in a collection, are you going to have a person? I don't care inherently or not inherently. Are you going to have a person? Well, don't we also say that the uh, that the body is made of non-body parts? Yes. So if you put all these things that are non-body parts together, but is the collection itself a body? No, that's no, the collection itself is not the body. It has to be designated the body. And that's even on a conventional level. But you can't put, you know, five oranges together and get an apple. And you can't put five things that are not a self together and get a self. Yeah, it doesn't work. Okay. Um, and then also, since the collection of the aggregates can't be the self, it's the basis of designation for the self, but it's not the self. Since the collection of aggregates aren't the self, the continuum of the aggregates can't be the self either. Yeah. Because a continuum is also a collection. So some people might say, well, you know, the collection of the aggregates can't be the self because the aggregates are here this moment, but then they're different aggregates the next moment. So the they say the continuation of the aggregates is the self. But again, you know, if the collection isn't the self, the continuation can't be the self. Right? 
Okay. Then the the um, the last one is the self, the shape or arrangement of the aggregates. Well, only the body has a shape. So then you're back to is the self the, the body, and we clearly aren't our body. Okay. So when you go through these things, you know, then you can really come to a conclusion that oh. There's no inherently existent self, because if there were, it should exist in one of these seven ways. And I've looked in all seven ways, and it doesn't. So even though the first two ways, inherently one, inherently separate, even though those subsume the other five, it's very helpful to go through all five, because when you go through the other ones, you see like slightly different ways that that our mind has of thinking of the self and the and the aggregates, what their relationship is. Okay. Like I said, sometimes it feels like there's just the aggregates and then a self wandering in them. And sometimes it feels like there's this big self and the aggregates kind of fill in the blanks. And sometimes it seems like there's this collection that is the aggregate. So sometimes the shape is the aggregate, but, you know, we can't be just our body. So it's, it's quite helpful to go through these yeah. and see, uh, you know, it gives us an idea of the different ways we see this relationship and how, you know, on a conventional level, the self does possess the body. Okay? And on a conventional level, you know, the base, the aggregates and the self depend on each other because the basis of designation and the designated object depend on each other. And on a conventional level, you know, the collection is the basis of designation for the self. But whenever you put inherent in any of these things, that's when you run into trouble. Okay. Okay, so that's kind of talking about the the emptiness of the I, the big I, capital one. Okay, now remember when we were talking about the view of the perishing aggregates, which is the first link uh, in the 12 links? We were saying that it's grasping at the I and mind as inherently existent. So we just refuted the I being inherently existent. But what does it mean for the mind to be inherently existent? So this this gets a little bit tricky with kind of a play on words because in a conventional way, we say my body is mine, my feelings are mine, my consciousness is mine. Okay? So we say that. So we can say all those things are mine. But then... When we're looking at the view of the perishing aggregates, that is a self-grasping of persons. But holding the body, the feeling, and those things, those are the aggregates, those are phenomena. So holding them as truly existent isn't the self-grasping of persons, it's the self-grasping of phenomena. So when we're negating the inherent existence of the mind, we're not negating the inherent existence of the body, the feelings, the consciousness, and so on, because that comes under the selflessness of phenomena. Okay, When we're negating the inherent existence of mind, as in the view of the perishing aggregates that grasp that I and mine, mine is like the owner. It's the I in the form of the one who owns. Okay, there's different people describe it in different ways, and they have all sorts of debate about what it is exactly. But basically what it is, it's, you know, it's a truly existent mind, and it's, there's, you know, a person who, you know, owns these things. Yeah, a real person who owns it. Now you can get this, you can see this grasping at mind, when uh, we get a possession, okay, so I always like to use cars because people get very attached to their cars. 
If you go on the showroom floor and there's a very attractive car, you might have some attachment to it, but not a whole lot because if it gets dented or something, you don't get all bummed out about it, do you? You know, it's a car and a showroom floor. It's nice, but if it gets dented, who cares? Now, as soon as you trade some paper for that car and you give the name mine to it, and when you're not content just with giving the name mine, but you think that there's a real me who owns this, then when the car gets dented, what happens? Whoa, you're really mad, aren't you? You're really upset because this is mine. This is mine. And so it feels like almost a personal attack. When our, your car is dented, you feel personally attacked, don't you? If somebody steals something from you, you feel so personally attacked. There's this feeling of, this is mine, you know. So there's this I that's this owner, you know, that's so strong. So this might come up, you know, when our body doesn't feel well or when our mind is unhappy. My body is sick. My body is dying. My mind is tangled up in knots. My mind is so confused. There's, you know, such grasping at, at this mind or this person who owns the body and mind, okay, as truly existent. So that's what, you know, is the object of negation when you're negating the grasping at mind. And then you go through the, the same series of refutations as the mind, one with the aggregate, separate with the aggregates, and so on. But what I find so hilarious about the grasping at mind is as soon as you give something, another label besides mind, our whole attitude about it changes, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think it's so amazing, you know, because we talk sometimes about babies getting mixed up in hospitals. Yeah? So when you have a baby, this is my baby, my baby. But let's say your baby got mixed up in the hospital, okay? So your baby, the one that's biologically yours, actually gets raised by somebody else. And you, you're raising the, the baby that is not biologically yours. But you affix the term mine to that, that new baby. And, you know, and you have the same relationship as you would with a child that was biologically yours. Okay? So this whole thing that, you know, you know, blood is thicker than water, it has nothing to do with genetics. And it has everything to do with grasping at mine. Because as soon as we fix the name mine, the grasping is just, you know. Okay. So that's a little bit, you know, what Shantideva is getting at when, when he asks us to, to, you know, think of our body, you know, because we always think of this body as mine. But the, this body, when you analyze Okay, the, the sperm and the egg came from our parents, and all the food came from the farmers, or from the animals that we ate. So what about this body is mine? Yeah? It would actually be more correct to say that this body was my parents' body. Because the sperm and egg came from them. All the genes came from them. They aren't my genes and my chromosomes. They're their genes. So it's actually more correct to say this body is my parents' body. Or because you were eating all the food that the farmers grew. So my body is the farmers. belongs to the farmers. Or if you eat meat, eat meat my body is the cows. Belongs to cows and pigs and chickens and fish. When you think about it in that way, what really is mine about this body? 
you know. Yet we cherish this body so much. We grasp onto it so much. There's such a strong feeling of I am the owner of this body. And there's such a strong feeling of the body itself as being truly existent. And both of those are hallucinations. But hallucination or not, we believe it's true. I mean, this is how deep our ignorance is, is that these things that are like totally off the wall, we believe are completely 100% true. That is how out of touch with reality our mind is. So when you think about this, it's really very, very humbling. You know, because we always consider ourselves kind of savvy and wise and, you know, nobody can pull one over on us. But we're hallucinating and we're believing in the existence of things that don't exist at all. Okay? So, you know, when you think about it that way, then you can see why ignorance is so deep and why it's so hard to eliminate. And why even questioning our perceptions is something that most people never even consider or are interested in doing because the mind is so entrenched in the ignorant view. So entrenched. Okay. So that's... We just went through Kandakirti's seven points. And they're very good for, for meditating on the selflessness of the person. Yeah, particularly I, me. Okay? You can also do it if you want to uh, regarding somebody else. You know, if you're grasping at somebody else who you think is really, truly existent, you know, start taking them apart. You know, I love you. Who? You love the body? You love the mind? You love the person who's separate from the body and mind? Yeah? Who is it exactly that you're saying you love when you say, I love you? This is very interesting. It's very good. You know, you can kind of tear that apart. What, is, what exactly am I attached to here? Who is this person? You know, there are a bunch of feelings, a bunch of discriminations, a bunch of conditioned factors, a bunch of consciousnesses. Which one of them is the person that I love and I can't live without? Huh? Very interesting. Okay. So it's sometimes very helpful to do, you know, regarding other people, too, when you're attached to somebody else. Okay. So um, now we're going to move on to a new topic, which we're going to be talking about the selflessness of phenomena. And there's uh, many different ways to talk about the selflessness of phenomena. Okay, I put it this way. There's many different kinds of reasoning we can use to refute the selfless phenomena. And here phenomena... Is, means anything other than the person and it refers chiefly to the aggregates because those are the things we grasp at the most but it could also refer to, to other things as well you know besides our own personal aggregates so um, there's, like I said there's different reasonings you can use one of the reasonings that is, that is uh, discussed quite a lot um, is called the diamond slivers and it's called the diamond slivers because just as one part of a diamond, it's very tiny, but it's very hard and it can cut very hard things. So, too, this, this uh, reasoning, you know, if you just grasp it, it becomes very penetrating like that. So this was taught first uh, in the Gajana, as far as I know. And it's the first verse in the Treatise on the Middle Way. Okay? And so actually when you study the Treatise on the Middle Way, this first verse, you often spend months, you know? Because right now, you know, Geshe Zopa's, um, the teaching that we're having from him on Sache uh, Tichem, the Ocean of Reasoning by, by J. Rinpoche, then uh, it's going through the text. 
okay? And this first verse, there's pages and pages after pages all about this verse, you know? And then Chandakirti supplement uh, um, to the treatise in the middle of the way. So much discussion about this verse. One verse, okay? So let me read the verse to you. It says, Nothing is ever in any way produced from itself, from another, from both itself and another, or without a cause. Okay. So nothing is ever produced in any way from itself, from something that's other than it, from something that's both self and other, and without a cause. Okay, so there's four points here. So if you're making it a syllogism, you would say, well, um, you could use the self, you could use, let's, t- let's take the body, you know. Okay, the body is not produced, or the body is empty of apparent existence because it is not, it is not produced in any of the four ways. And then you have to delineate those four ways and negate each of those four ways. Yeah. So the four ways is that the body's not inherently produced from self. The body's not inherently produced from other. The body's not inherently produced from self and other. And the body isn't inherently produced without any cause. Okay. Instead of produce, Tupchinjimba was saying it's, it would be better to use arise because he was saying that this refutation is a refutation of the status of the result, whereas producing is something that the cause does, whereas arising is something that the self, that the result has done. So he said, actually, it's better to use arising in English rather than production. Yeah, because we often call this, you know, self-production, other production. Okay. So in the four points, yeah, we usually say self-production, so self-arising, <laughs> like self-arising bread, you know. Um, <laughs> um, other arising, yeah, arising from both self and others, and arising without a cause. Okay, so you have to refute each of those four ways, and then when you have all four of those together, you've refuted that it could exist in any of those four ways, then you can understand the whole syllogism, that the body doesn't inherently exist because it's not produced in, in any of these four ways. Okay, so... We have to look at, you know, what is self-production, what is other production, what is production from self and others, and what's causeless production. So we'll just go over those kind of briefly now. Self-production, it was a theory of the Samkhya's, yeah, and they say that the cause, the result exists within the cause. So something is you know, arises from itself because the result already exists in the cause. Okay, so that's the theory of the Samkhya's. Then, um, arising from other, who was it that had the uh, arising? Oh, the lower Buddhist schools. They're, they're the ones who say that the, the, like the body, for example, would arise from something that is other, you know. So then we have to hear, say, something that is inherently other. Okay. Because the body did arise from things that are other than it, the sperm and the egg and the food, but it didn't inherently arise from those things. Okay. And then the third one is the view of the Jains, and that is that things are arise uh, from both, they're both self-arising and arising from others. Because they would say that uh, a clay pot, for example, arises from self because it arises from the clay, you know, and it's, it's found in the clay. 
But it also arises from other because it requires the potter who made the pot. Okay, so it puts both self and other together. Okay? And then the last one is the theory of the uh, Travakas or the hedonists. And they say that thing that, you know, uh, things happen without causes. I mean, they wouldn't negate the obvious thing that, you know, planting the seed grows a sprout, but they say many things like the color of, you know, they always say the color of a peacock's feather have no cause, or the roundness of a pea has no cause, you know. And you can extrapolate from there, you know, telephone has no cause, or whatever. Although I don't know if they'd get too emotional about it, because I think they could see the telephone has a cause. But, uh, you know, they would say many kinds of things just appear causelessly, you know, like our life. Many people nowadays say that, you know, don't they? Yeah? How'd you get here? I don't know. No cause. No cause. There's nothing that produced me. Yeah? So, you know, a lot of people kind of have that feeling. So, uh, here, what, what we do is we're going to go and really analyze these four ways of existing and see if it's possible for anything to arise in any of these four ways. Okay? Let me just pause here and see if there's any questions. I have a question about the, the uh-huh. Buddhist school's wording, and maybe this isn't... Well, anyway, the question came up. Is it the, the reputation that something doesn't inherently arise from other or doesn't arise from something that is inherently other? Okay. It, it kind of comes to the same point. It's, I, I would say it doesn't arise from something that in, is inherently other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for clarification, um, all of the reputations on the inherently existent self, you had said that on the conventional level the points are possible? Like the conventional the conventional self is a collection of parts? I no, no the collect, the, the, um, we can't say that the conventional self is the collection of parts. We say the conventional self is designated in dependence upon the collection of parts or the collection of aggregates. Okay? Okay. And that's the same thing with the self as the shape of the aggregate. Yeah. In pieces of that, that is dependence upon yeah. certain aspects. Okay. Well, the reason you can't say the self is the shape of the aggregates because only the body has the shape. A shape. Mm-hmm. So that would be like saying the self is the body. Yeah, and the self's not the body. Okay. The body's not the self. Okay. So it was really on the conventional level, the one that was independent upon the collection of the aggregate. Yeah, That's yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, any other questions? Okay, so I'll start on the, 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 um, the Sankyasu, the, the uh, uh, self-arising, okay? They spent so long negating this one. Um, so what the what the Samhya school says is that things are produced by causes which are inherently the same nature as them. Okay? So two things that are the same nature must exist at the same time. And so the Samhyas believe that a sprout exists in a non-manifest form inside the seed. So we're using the example of the seed and the sprout, but it's very interesting once you get the meaning of this to start use other things like your body or suffering or realizations or whatever and start to analyze one of these other things, how it exists. Okay? So if you say that the sprout exists in a non-manifest form inside the seed at the time of the seed, okay, then you're saying that the sprout and the seed exist at the same time. Okay. Can things that are caught in a cause and effect relationship exist at the same time? No. Okay, they can't. 
causes also always come first and they're followed by results and the cause always has to disappear before the result can arise you don't have the cause and result existing at the same time do you okay so here you know it would entail the cause and result existing at the same time if the sprout in, you know arose from its from itself yeah or if the seed inherently produced the sprout like that yeah they would have to exist at the same time so if that were the case then the coming into being of the sprout is useless because it already exists when the seed is there okay so the seed the sprout wouldn't need to be produced it wouldn't need to arise because it's already there when the seed is there okay so that's one fallacy or if you say that it's there in the seed but it still needs to be produced then its production would be endless because if it if it's already there and it still needs to be produced then even if after it arises it's still already there so it can be produced again and again and again yeah and all or and all of those sprouts can arise without your initial seed going out of existence because the seed and the sprout exist at the same time that's baloney too isn't it okay that doesn't work um it we would <laughs> the the example that they that they often give one of my favorite examples is if the result existed in the cause okay then you know you have a, a very delicious plate of food which is the cause for excrement isn't it okay now if the excrement were produced from itself you know if the excrement were in the the food in a non-manifest form then what would you be eating yeah or even or if it was there in a manifest form it would be even worse okay but unmanifest form is bad enough yeah because the result would already be there so in some ways this is almost like a view of predetermination you know when i think about it how it relates to 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 our way of thinking in western culture because when we think of predetermination we have this idea that things already the result is already there in the cause you know and there's no way it cannot be produced because it's already there or sometimes when we talk about time and time machines you would get this idea as if oh the future you know you could go back in a time machine because the cause is still there right now yeah or you could go ahead in a time machine because the future is here right now but it's just in another dimension isn't this when we talk about time machines and our sci-fi you know this kind of the idea we get yeah we're kind of waiting for scientists to be able to you know break the time barrier and send us back in time send us ahead in time but this is kind of to me it re- it seems very related to the sankhya theory that that the result inheres or exists inherently within the cause you know it's predetermined it's already there so it's got to be produced there's no variance in there and it's kind of as if it's there but in some other non-manifest realm you know like you have the when you have this idea of we're soulmates you know so I'm lonely right now but my soulmate is there you know kind of in some non-manifest form predetest pre I was going to say predetested <laughs> predetermined 
Um, you know, for me, no possible way to have it any other way. You know, this whole idea of soulmate is very mixed up with grasping an inherent existence. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, you can see, you know, where that comes from. Because you can't say that the, that the result is there at the same time of the cause. Manifest form or unmanifest form, either way does it work. We're already a Buddha. Huh? Like we're already a Buddha. Yeah, like we're already a Buddha. You know, then we're an ignorant Buddha. Okay? So next week we'll continue talking about this production or arising from self.